Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I thank you all for uh, coming today. The soul of our beloved city is rooted in a history that has evolved over thousands of years. This is New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landro addressing his city back in May. He's speaking at the end of a long, ugly debate, one that involved threats against his life. And he's trying to get people to understand the distinction between remembering and revering Southern history. To literally put the Confederacy on a pedestal in our most prominent places, in honor, is an inaccurate recitation of our full past is an affront to our present, and it is a bad prescription for our future. In June of 2015, a week after Dylan Roof killed nine black people at church in Charleston, South Carolina, having posed with a Confederate flag, the mayor proposed that the city remove four Confederate monuments from public places. It was the start of something. Barack Obama was still president. We'd just been through months of public mourning and outrage over police violence. And Ruth's terrorist attack got many Americans thinking anew about Confederate symbols and icons. New Orleans took action. The city council voted with the mayor, and this spring, the monuments came down. It is our acknowledgement that now is a time to take stock of and then move past a painful part of our history. Anything less would render generations of courageous struggle and soul-searching a truly lost cause. The Battle of New Orleans was something of a marker, and not just for racial justice. The white nationalist movement has focused intensely on the debate over Confederate iconography. It has been a rallying point. And to anyone who's been watching, Charlottesville was no surprise. We begin tonight with that breaking news, a horrific scene in Charlottesville, Virginia, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence and chaos. The image is just coming in, a car plowing into a crowd of demonstrators. I'm Kai Wright, and this is the United States of Anxiety, Culture Wars. We're reopening the series for just a moment here because, well, the news demands it. We looked at the white nationalist movement's growth back in episode six, and you should check it out if you missed it. But today, I'm joined by reporter Arun Vinagopal, who's been working on a project that's asking us to think about the Confederacy above the Mason-Dixon line and beyond white nationalists. Hey, Arun. Hi, Kai. So before you tell us what you're doing, and heads up, everybody, the whole point here is we're going to need something from you. But before we get to that, Arun, I want to play you one more thing from Mayor Landrieu's speech. Listen to this. All right. Even with my family's proud history of fighting for civil rights. I must have passed by these monuments thousands of times without giving them a second thought. So I'm not judging anybody. I'm not judging people. We all take our own journey on race. 
So this makes me think about all the stuff that just kind of exists as wallpaper in American culture. You know, the stuff that carries great meaning, but we take it as just normal, as just there. Mm-hmm. And as you and I started talking about how the Confederate battle flag became part of the wallpaper for even the parts of the North, you reminded me of something that we both sort of just took as normal in our childhood. Just a good old boy. Never Never meaning no harm. harm. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, the Dukes of Hazard. Apparently you watched this as a kid as well. Oh, yes, I did. Um, my dad, actually, um, when I was about nine, he caught me watching the Dukes of Hazard, and he's like, I do not want you watching this show, uh, because he sees the Duke boys, uh, Bo and Luke Duke, for those of you who have not had the privilege of watching the show, he sees them driving around real fast, you know, there are these, uh, anti-social elements on TV, they're up to no good, And he doesn't want his son, his young, impressionable son, following in their deviant footsteps, right? And I was all like, please, Daddy, let me watch Dick's Master, you know? And and he's like, all right, okay, fine. But you had to promise me that you will never drive that (laughs) fast. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Don't drive fast. This is the lesson that you guys take away from it. (laughs) Yes, that was it. I have to say, we watched it surreptitiously, usually, because it was very clear in my family that there was a Confederate battle flag on these white guys' cars, and (laughs) they were good old boys racing around and probably being racists. Yeah, I don't know if at some level— my dad was perceiving that this was not our values or whatever it was, but he did not take issue with any Confederate battle flags in that show. This completely went over his, uh, over my head. I was just like, all right, it's a fun show. You know what? These guys are, they're fun and they're cool. Well, it was a great show. We watched it because it was a lot of fun. I think my dad even watched it with us despite his misgivings. Yeah, it was, we just thought it was cool. You know, these are a couple guys who did nothing but look good and drive real fast. And every week or every episode, they're pulling the wool over the eyes of the local yokel sheriff, Roscoe P. Colt train and uh they have there's no repercussions whatsoever they were just good old boys and you know i grew up in texas right and it took me a few years to realize that i would never be one of the good old boys Mm. (laughs) well your instincts were right there right okay so you were in texas and we're talking about the battle flag down there but now you're in new york and we're still talking about the battle flag up here yeah shows like the dukes of hazard they were the pop culture as part of a much larger process of normalizing the flag, all right? I actually spoke to a Southern historian. His name is Fitzhugh Brundage. And he was telling me how a lot of this started in the post-war era. We're talking, um, well, remember Strom Thurmond. Indeed. So Strom runs for president in 1948, right? On the Dixiecrat ticket. Right. And the proper name of the Dixiecrat Party was the state's rights Democratic Party. And they reinvoked the Confederate rebel flag and— these efforts are playing out on a national stage, right? Sales of the flag explode. It becomes the symbol of segregation as we move into the 1950s when the civil rights movement really kicks into high gear. And let me just quote The Atlantic magazine. It fluttered from the radio antennas of cars and motorcycles, festooned towels and trinkets, and was exhibited on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Close quote. All right, it shows up at Klan rallies, 
at white citizen council meetings. It's featured prominently a little later at Leonard Skinner concert. I don't know if you ever listened to Leonard Skinner. I did a lot when I was growing up. I have to say, it was kind of like the Dukes, but in a little more ominous way. I, I can remember singing it, you know, as a kid in Indiana, and I never really understood it until I got to college. And I went to college down in Georgia, and I was riding around with the rugby team. It's a whole other story I read. <laughs> but I was riding around in a car to a rugby match with a bunch of, like, young white guys I didn't know who were all from the South. And it was on a dark Georgia road, and they start singing that Leonard Skinner song, the Sweet Home Alabama. Sweet Home Alabama. And I heard it for the first time. And it... You, like, you, you, as in you really heard I it. I really heard it for the first time, and it scared me to death. I quit the rugby team after that. But it was the first time that I really understood that piece of wallpaper for what it was. Yeah, and suddenly... That switch goes off, which I think for many of us, for all these years, it's just been there in the background. It's a song that's just pretty. It's hummable, you know? I mean, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, a coworker actually. Dixie is a beautiful song. <laughs> you know, you hear those four-part harmonies or whatever it is. It is so hummable. And then one day you catch yourself, you realize, oh, my God, what am I doing here? But that's that's what all of this is about, I think, is that pop culture normalizes it. It prettifies even the ugliest things in American society. And I think that's what happened with something even like um, the Confederate flag. Well, yeah, and we're talking about all of this in the way that it has often lived in our lives as this sort of innocuous thing. Even when we realize it's there, maybe we're annoyed by it. But meanwhile, these are real symbols for a certain segment of America that mean a lot and that carry violent meaning for many of them. Yeah, and I think it's only at these rare moments of time where suddenly the violence of these symbols is really thrust into the national consciousness, you know? And I think that's exactly what did happen a couple years ago when, you know, 2015, in the immediate aftermath of that attack in Charleston, we saw these images of Dylan Roof with a Confederate flag. And I think it was at that moment when a lot of us were reminded of just exactly what the flag really means. And suddenly the flag is no longer just wallpaper for a lot of Americans. It's no longer innocuous. It is this very powerful idea that has been at the center of racial violence since this country was formed, really. It's after that, the governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, she calls for the flag to be brought down. And in response to this, there are hundreds of rallies across the South, but not just in the South. Okay, a lot of these rallies are also taking place in places like Oregon, Washington State, Illinois, Arizona, Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And Kai, this brings me to Christina Huntwood. She's an artist and she lives in the Catskills in New York State. And in 2015, she noticed something. Flags started springing up everywhere. And I just felt like I was surrounded by um, really frightening people. Wood is biracial. Her dad's black, her mom's white, and a sixth generation local. Okay, so their family has really deep roots in, in this county, in Delaware County, New York. And Delaware County is about three hours above New York City. Yeah, that's right. And it's in this area called the Southern Tier of New York. And she starts seeing all these flags, and suddenly she has a sense that she is out of place. What makes it worse for her is the fact that 
these flags aren't just appearing here and there on homes, on the sides of barns. There are vendors at the Delaware County Fair who start selling these flags. Mm. And that number increases, 2015, 2016, 2017. There's now about half a dozen of these vendors who sell. So Christina and her friends or allies in the area, they start fighting this. They're saying there's no reason for the fair to sell Confederate flags. But the fair resists. They want to allow these vendors to do that. And their attitude is, you know what? The more vendors, the better, which she finds really offensive. I talked to her just after the violence in Charlottesville. We're a very red county. And there are a lot of people here who still will listen to anything our president says. And I don't know that the incidents in Charlottesville is going to change their mind. I don't know. I mean, Charleston didn't change their mind. So Christina sounds pretty bummed about how things stand now. But honestly, there's another side to this. She's part of an exploding movement that started in the wake of Dylan Roof's horrific crime and that has led to a systematic dismantling of this Confederate iconography all over the country. And that's that's a good thing. And that's also what we are actually here to talk about, right? Because Arun, you and WNYC are part of a broader effort to try to understand the Confederate flag's place here in the North. And you're trying to figure out why it got here, who's flying it, who's wearing it, what they're doing it, what appeals to them about it. And you want some help from our listeners in that project, correct? So what are we asking folks to do? All we want you to do is fill out a very brief form that tells us where you've spotted a Confederate flag. We're mapping that anywhere in New York State. Uh, We want you to tell us, and we're going to create a map with all these locations. Okay, so listeners, if you want to participate in this, we really hope you will. Go to WNYC.org slash flags. That's WNYC.org slash flags. Follow the prompts, enter the information, help us map where we're seeing the Confederacy show up above the Mason-Dixon line. Arun, thanks for working on this project with us. Thanks for having me, Pat. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.